Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're exploring Ireland's Middle Kingdom, finding out about the history of Rathgar and Churchtown, and hearing some great stories about Galway over the centuries. Last week, we heard about JFK's visit to Ireland in June 1963 and assessed its legacy. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show exploring Ireland's Middle Kingdom. Ireland's Middle Kingdom once stretched from the Shannon to the Irish Sea. Created in the Iron Age as Ireland's fifth province, it soon became the richest and most powerful of them all. For over a thousand years, meetings of the Irish kings and tribal leaders were held at the Hill of Tara and many of the high kings were chosen from the Middle Kingdom. And a brilliant new book tells its story. It's called Exploring Ireland's Middle Kingdom, A Guide to the Ancient Kingdom of Meath. It's published in paperback by Somerville Press. The author is Valerie Packenham. And Valerie, you're very welcome to the show. Oh, well, it's very nice to be, be asked. <laughs> it's it's a fascinating history and a fascinating story. And talk to me about why you wanted to tell the story of the Middle Kingdom, because I think it's probably a story that has been lost to us. Yes, well, I suppose, first of all, I live in, well, just over the border in West Mead. But I mean, I was very much aware that we were always part, part of, originally, as we know, Mead stretched much larger area, and um, it was chopped. I mean, West Mead was chopped away from from um, what is now called Mead by Henry VIII, because of course the, the I think West Mead was considered to be inhabited by the unruly Irish, and so he, he sort of lost control over it. But anyway, so I've always been conscious that you know that we were part of a of a larger kingdom, and I hadn't actually realised quite how large the borders of the ancient kingdom were. They went right the way down to Offaly, parts of Kildare. But basically, I just thought it would be fun to do a guidebook to the four main counties, which were once part of Meath, which was um, um, Meath, West Meath, Louth, and and Longford. And, um, and it was a way of trying to encourage people to come and see all the lovely things there are to see all around here. Yeah, it is interesting the way it was all split up because you mentioned Henry VIII and, of course, his daughter then, Queen Elizabeth I, she, she split uh, Westmeath further. Yeah, well, she split it into between Longford and Westmeath, yes. So it had all of these divisions. And it's a story that goes very far back, even to uh, uh, prehistoric times. And we can go, uh, because of archaeological evidence, we can go back perhaps uh, to about 5,000 years ago. Yes, but of course the great monuments that were, I, I don't know how my pronunciation is very bad. I think it's called Bruna Boy now. Anyway, obviously Dowd, Nauv and, and Newgrange, these three ex- extraordinary prehistoric mounds on the bend of the Boyne River. They're thought to be about 3,900 BC, aren't they? I think so, yes, yes. Yeah, and of course there were, I mean, there were certainly hunter gatherers in this area of Ireland even earlier than that because of all kinds of flints and things have been found, particularly along the edge of rivers. I mean, the Inny and the Boyne, apparently, both absolutely full of remains of early settlers along their banks, which would go back to the 6th or 7th century BC. And how powerful did the Middle Kingdom become? Because I mentioned about the Hill of Tara and the, the Irish kings meeting there and many of the high kings coming from the Middle Kingdom, but it seems to become a very rich kingdom and a very powerful uh, kingdom. 
Yes, but it says that the irony was, of course, that to begin with, this is all according, I'm sure you read Gerald of Wales, who's full of facts and non-facts, but what the hell he's lovely to read. Anyway, he claims that, that the kingdom was basically founded as a, as a kind of sop to the youngest of five brothers, who was called Slanius or Slain, and he was given a little sliver of the other four brothers' kingdoms, but he managed to make somehow expand it, and then it became really the richest and most powerful of all the four king, five kingdoms. And um, and again, the the Tara became, as we all know, the absolute centre of of kind of all island ceremonies, and um, that all the the different kings would come and meet there once a year, or even sometimes twice a year. And the and but the original centre, of course, was in Westmead, which was which was the hill of Ushna, and that's meant to be when the division of Ireland into five provinces took place there. So that, of course, now is in Westmead, just outside Malingar. But the, apparently then there was a, a, a royal road which went from the hill of Ushna to Tara. Um, and um, basically the, 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 the kind of power centers shifted eastwards to Tara. Anyway, he apparently basically changed the um, base of the sort of center for meetings to Tara Hill, and then that really became the the the, the center for for sort of tribal gatherings for the next thousand or so years. And how did things change then after the Norman conquest? Because it does seem to become the the, the royal province, and you have Hugh de Lacy appointed as as the yes. king's uh, a deputy, and becomes this hugely important figure. And uh, talk to us about you know we have the great castle being built at Trim. We seem to have uh, significant changes then in this period. Yes, well, of course. I mean, as we know, Henry the Second, when after Strongbow had established himself as king of Leinster, and he, I mean, lord of Leinster, and so. Henry II was determined that he would stay as overlord of the whole of Ireland. And so he brought in his sort of trusted deputy, Hugh de Lacey, to be the owner or controller of Meath, which was also one of the, still one of the richest provinces. And Hugh de Lacey was an extraordinary dynamic and energetic character. He, he loved building castles. He built castles everywhere he went. In fact, I think he, he, he literally met his death. He was leaning over, inspecting the building of a castle at Durrow, and um, some angry um, local came and chopped his head off. But uh, anyway, he was an extraordinary, energetic man, and he really created um, the, 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 the Norman kingdom of Meath and dotted it with castles, um, and all his followers were given estates there, and the, the whole kind of Norman system was put in place there. But of course, there had been a lot of um, earlier, I mean, like the kind of great Norman um, orders, monastic orders had already come to Ireland even before um, before Strongbow. We already had the Augustinians and the Cistercians who had been brought over really from Europe and had already got monasteries in, in large parts of the and finally, I think what's wonderful about the book is that it's, it could act as a guidebook for, for tourists or even people who live in the area to explore it because I think there is a lot of uh, treasures here and a lot of interesting sites that people may not be aware of the full significance of them. Yes, well, I said that was my idea. You see, partly, I suppose, 
in lockdown as nobody could go abroad. So I thought I should encourage people to try and see what was in the local area. So I've arranged it really with kind of maps and itineraries for different, different about seven or eight different places. So they could sort of go out in a car and go and look at about eight or nine things in, in one journey. Um, but it was also my own, I suppose my own, I've lived here for a very long time. And I've, I suppose I was always trying to encourage people coming to stay with me to go and visit <laughs> all the places around and try and see what, what wonderful things there were in this area. Particularly Trim Castle is one of my absolutely favorite places. It's so beautiful there on the, on the, on the bend in the Boyne River. And it's still got this wonderful atmosphere about it. Well, I think it was lockdown time well spent because I think uh, your readers will get a lot of pleasure from this book and from exploring the old Middle Kingdom. The book is called Exploring Ireland's Middle Kingdom, A Guide to the Ancient Kingdom of Meath, published in paperback by Somerville Press. The author, the wonderful Valerie Packenham. And Valerie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Not at all. Pleasure. Anyway, I hope one day you'll visit your Gagan ancestors. They had a castle place called Horsleap. Did you know about that? I know Horsleap very well. I grew up oh. not too far away from it. Oh, of course, which was named after the famous Leap, the uh, Hugh de Lacey spent uh, uh, trying to escape from the Gagans. <laughs> <laughs> we, do, we, we did cause a lot of trouble in the past. Uh, Valerie, thanks. Did. <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much. Okay. We still try to cause a little <laughs> bit of trouble. Thanks so much, Valerie. Okay. Bye. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. If you take a trip across the Dodder, you'll see the two suburbs, Rathgar and Churchtown, nestling on opposite banks. And a new book looks at their evolution and gives a unique view on the development of Dublin and Ireland through the centuries, from fields and farms to the densely populated, busy suburbs of the 21st century. The book is called On the Banks of the Dodder, Rathgar and Churchtown, an illustrated history. It's published in hardback by the O'Brien Press. The author is Jed Walsh, and there are lovely illustrations by Michael O'Brien and a great forward by Peter Pearson. And uh, Jed, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much indeed, Patrick. A pleasure to be with you. It is a, it is a, it is a great story. So talk to me about the two suburbs, Rathgar and Churchtown, and I suppose they're connected Activity and and why you wanted to explore their history together? Yeah, um, Rathgar, as you know, it would be kind of regarded as an old uh, parish and an old section of Dublin. And there was a, there has been a few books on Rathgar, but Churchtown, for people who don't live in Dublin, it lies between Dundrum, Rathgar, and Rathfarnham, and nothing had ever been done about Churchtown, and. Rathgar, okay, you could go through the history and portray the older sections from from pre-Georgian back up and how it evolved in the uh, 1800s and on to the 1860s when it um, was succumbed into the township of Rathmines. And so that was kind of all preordained, so to speak, from a historical sense. But Churchtown had been neglected and Churchtown was just green fields and it didn't really, as I say, it was neglected. And then it started evolving from um, after the Civil War, that kind of period, the 20s. So that's what I wanted to portray really in both of them, the compare and contrast. And obviously uh, the name of the book is On the Banks of the Dodder because the Dodder is the boundary between both 
Excellent. And as I say, you do get a, a great insight into how Dublin developed through this period. And talk to me about how Rathgar and Churchtown also developed and uh, going from countryside really to being uh, some of the most popular suburbs in Dublin. Yeah, exactly. The big development of Rathgar really was when the township of Rathmines, as you know, townships were formed around the 1840s and 50s and they evolved. Now, Rathgar evolved under that umbrella and it was generally, um, Rathgar kind of came together from a religious concept. The Presbyterians built the iconic church in Rathgar, Christ Church, which is in the main, in the village as such. And it was kind of developed through the auspices of religion, particularly Presbyterian. Then um, the the involvement, in fact, there's a great story about David Drummond, who could be regarded as the father of Rathgar. Uh, at one stage, they wanted the main road uh, to go to Rathfarnham through Zine Road and through what's now high school and on to meet Eli Gate, which was owned by the Blackburn family at the time. And uh, David Drummond and a man called Waldron, who uh, was a Catholic, they joined together. And in fact, they made the road that's now Orwell Road and the connecting bridge. The bridge was called Waldron's Bridge. And they preempted your man Blackburn trying to get the um, road up to his gate and, uh, and that was done Presbyterian and Catholic against Church of Ireland. And uh, it was on a generally religious line that that kind of Rathgar developed. Now, then you come to Churchtown, as I say, and it didn't really develop until after the, after, you know, the turn of the 1900s. And it developed in a very piecemeal way. And I suppose... One simple example of like why I got involved in local history at all, maybe 30, 35 years ago, and what was your interest? For instance, most people in South County Dublin or even people going to Dundrum uh, Shopping Centre would go through or, um, Bramer Road towards Dundrum. Now, Bramer Road, everybody says, oh, the Scottish connection, and it runs that way. In fact, it isn't. It's BRA for Brady. M-O-R for Morn, and D-E for Ethel, who was Brady's wife. So it's Bramer from that. And it's that kind of curiosity that I wanted to get down. I wanted people to have an interest in what's around them. I was stupid enough to write about two parts of Dublin that have no bookshops. People have a natural curiosity to know what's around them and to know what's happening around them. They know that particularly with COVID, where people had a 5K restriction on their walking, they have explored areas and lanes and byways on foot that they had never seen before. And there was a natural curiosity to see what is around the area, what house was that, who lived there. And I had a natural curiosity, as I said, 30, 35 years ago, which uh, whetted my appetite and this is the fulfilment of it the book and it's clear that you had a lot of fun researching and writing it can we talk about some of the characters in the book because again it's it, it looks like that there's some people who you really admire who were involved in the history of of these two areas but then also some uh, villains of the piece as well 
like every, you know, when you do uh, all history is local. It's like politics, local history and local politics. If we even go to the big political things at the moment, they're all governed by local politics. And I, I feel the core of history is uh, is local history. And you're so right that you do, as you're researching characters and people, you you like some of them. You, you admire a lot of them and you say, oh God, I'd hate to be sitting down with this fella or that lady. Do you know what I mean? One particular house springs to mind now that you asked the question in Orwell Park. And it was occupied by the Singh family the, and Stoker family and A.M. Sullivan, who was the last sergeant at arms in Ireland. And it, it's so funny that number four, Orwell Park, not obviously in sequence, but between different people, that's the three families. And in, in uh, you know, Singh was there and you go through his life. And he grew up in church down and then he, his father died and he moved to Rathgar. Then you have Bram Stoker's parents living there uh, before that. And then A.M. Sullivan. And then, uh, in, in, as I was saying earlier, David Drummond could be regarded as the father of Rathgar. And of course, in Rathgar, we have James Joyce, who was born there. He was born in Brighton Square, number 42, which isn't a square, it's a triangle. But uh, and of course, this year we have the centenary of his um, publication of Ulysses. But the the you're, you, as you say, there's other characters like Blackburn that you come across who was trying to be cute and get the road towards uh, Rathbar and that kind of thing. And it's only when you go back in the archives. Now, uh, I know that any modern historian like yourself would use uh, digital sources. I like the smell of cordite. I like the smell of the old documents. I like the smell of seeing what's going on and feeling the whole thing. It gives me a sense of uh, this is what it was like. So uh, the old documents you you meet, I love. I, I'm not great. I, I obviously had to use digital sources. Very good. I think that all comes across very well in the book. It's called On the Banks of the Dodder, Rathgar and Churchtown and Illustrated History. It's uh, published in hardback by the O'Brien Press. The author is Jed Walsh. And Jed, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Patrick, pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Dublin cattle market was an institution in the Irish livestock sector in the 1950s and a new book examines the market's final years between 1955 and 1973 and how its decline mirrored that of the traditional livestock fairs. The book is called The Dubline Cattle Market's Decline, 1955-73, to A Story of Radical Change in the Irish Livestock Industry. It's part of the Maynooth Studies in Local History series, published in paperback by Four Courts Press, and I'm delighted to welcome the author Declan O'Brien to the show tonight. Declan, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. So talk to me about the Dublin cattle market. Where was it located exactly, and just how significant was it in, in its heyday? Well, the Dublin Cattle Market was located um, right at the intersection of Purchase Street and uh, North Circular Road off the Keys in um, the north side of Dublin City. And for more than 100 years, it was established in 1863 by an Act of Parliament. It was effectively the stock exchange for the Irish livestock industry. It was at the apex 
of the marketing system for cattle in the country. It set the prices at fails right throughout Ireland for the bones of 80 years. And it was really 90 years, in, in fact. And it, it was really the, um, the shop window for Irish cattle. And talk to me about the numbers involved, because they, it, we really are talking about uh, uh, quite incredible numbers of cattle and sheep being sold there every week. Yes, it, it, at its peak in the 1940s and 50s, it was, it was selling up to 5,000 cattle a week through the market and up to 8,000 sheep. Um, and what was really interesting, I suppose, the, 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 iconic, um, the iconic images of the, of the market, well, not actually of the market itself, but of people moving the cattle through the streets of Dublin from the market to the North Wall because the market was intrinsically linked with Ireland's exports, live export of cattle through the, from the 1860s, uh, from the 1860s to the 1960s for over 100 years. And the importance of that trade in the um, 1940s and 50s particularly is that that trade generated about a third of the state's export earnings. So we were moving about or exporting about between 500 and 600,000 cattle every, every year. And the main um, market or the most influential market in that trade was the Dublin cattle market. And each week you had up to 5,000 cattle were sold at the Precious Street sale and up to 8,000 sheep. No, really quite incredible. And uh, an, an interesting part of the story is the connections that the market developed with local people in, in the areas. And that was a, an important part of the story as well. Yeah, it was a real interface between urban and rural. So that you had this very rural business in an urban setting. So you have the people who moved the cattle through, um, through North Dublin from the, the cattle market in Purchase Street to the docks and in North Wall, um, they were drovers and they were local um, local uh, Dublin natives, we'll say, or local Dublin residents from um, the Fibsbury area or that side of town. And they were, the people who worked in the market were amazed by how good these men were to turn and twist cattle to what we'd say handle cattle. To, to move cattle and they, they, they could split out three, four and five cattle from 30 cattle for a particular buyer. They were able to move the cattle through the streets with, with a dog and one man in front of them, one man behind them. They were just expert cattlemen. And also, the way the market worked, the cattle, when they came up from the country, were held in what were called cattle parks. These were 10 and 15 acre sites that ring the west of Dublin. They're now uh, technically part of Dublin City, so they'd be in Castlenock, Cabra, Fibsborough. And these rovers would go out to these cattle parks where the cattle were held for the three or four days before the sale, move them into the market, stall the cattle. The market itself would be opening at five o'clock in the morning, so that would be done the day before. 
they then move the cattle after the sale either to the docks or to the Dublin City Abattoir, which was across the road, or else onto factories around the town to be for, for the cattle to be slaughtered. So they were expert um, cattle traders. And Declan, what went wrong then? Why did it go into decline? And, and why then did it close in 1973? Well, I suppose that, that ties it into the, the changes, the profound, the profound changes that were occurring in the Irish cattle industry. Um, in the late 1950s, um, the industry was effectively controlled by the cattle exporters. So there was a drive by the farm organisations and farmers to, to get more control of, the, of the, the, the cattle business. And they established cooperative maths. And this was from the late 1950s. And the difference between the maths and the... Welcome back to Talking History. Through the medium of photography and history, two of Galway's finest writers and storytellers, Tom Kenny and Ronnie O'Gorman, have been telling stories of their native Galway in the Galway Advertiser each week. And a new book uh, brings together a selection of those stories and the proceeds of which go to Galway Simon Community. And the book is published by the Galway Advertiser. And I'm delighted to welcome Ronnie O'Gorman and Tom Kenny to the show tonight. You're very welcome. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Nice to talk. So, Ronnie, can you tell us about how the partnership works? Am I, is, am I correct <laughs> in saying that, that Tom uh, goes out and takes these wonderful photographs and then well, uh, you help provide the text around them and it's this great partnership uh, that helps <laughs> brings these stories to life? Well, something similar to that, but not quite. Tom has been doing this, uh, supplying an old uh, Galway photograph. That is, you know, a vintage photograph could be 50 years ago, could be 100 years ago, or it could be dangerously 60 years ago. And people complain, Tom will tell you about that, people complain when they're in the old Galway because they claim to be much younger than they look. But And I have been doing separately to that a sort of a, a history piece based vaguely on the dates of the year, or dates on the month, something on this month looking back over the years and getting a story that way. We've been... Uh, existing side by side for many, many years. Tom is better than years than I am. And um, we decided we put it together as a Christmas book for charity. And I think it worked pretty well, Tom, don't you? Indeed, it does, yeah, yeah. And it so seems, and it's sold out, and a, a, a new print sold out. So, uh, are there plans to do a new edition or perhaps to a, a new volume? Yes, I think well, we will do another, but uh, probably not this year, next year again. Um, yeah. yeah, it did sell out. Very good. Well, well, well it was well, a very happy shock that it sold out and sold so very quickly as well. Well, Ronnie, tell us maybe some of the the highlights of it because there really is so much history in the volume, and you have yeah. things like uh, Galway surrendering to Cromwell's troops. You have uh, oh, yeah. uh, the, the 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 roar of the guns from the the Battle of Ockram being heard in Galway. So you've got warfare and yeah. conflict, but you've also got great human interest <laughs> stories and uh, great oh, social yeah. stories about brandy and silk and tobacco coming in, and you've got smuggling. <laughs> so tell us about you know. The, the, the incredible range and diversity of these stories. Well, you're nice to say that. Yes, of course, there's a huge mix. I mean, Galway is like many other towns. It has stories to tell. 
And really, I look upon them not so much history as telling a story. I mean, I delve into the libraries. I've got quite a good library myself, but we've also got very good libraries in the college and in the city library. And uh, they, they, too, have an interest in historical stories and things like that. So there's plenty of scope to do research, to get a good story going. And really, I write it if the story is good rather than the history, if you know what I mean. It's important to entertain people, I think, and uh, we want the story to be good. So I look out for a good story. And we're not short of it. As you say, Galway was a great trading town. Uh, it attracted all kinds of interesting people to come and live here and all kinds of enemies as well, including Cromwell and his desperate. They ruined the town. They took it apart. But there's also a lot of social stories, which I like very much. You know, some of the old landed gentry, some of them were uh, sort of, you know, characters more than, than the gentry. But, um, you know, they, they add great color. And I love a good, colorful story, especially if it tells you know, an odd thing. We have Cool Park. My goodness, we, you know, we have Lady Gregory and all the strange people and good people that came to work and stay there. And um, so that's on the literary field. Um, we've got wonderful Marconi out in Clifton, a great man. And, you know, today I was just listening to John Bowman and there was uh, talking about the Titanic. You know, the main wireless operator on the Titanic was a man called Phillips who spent three and a half years out in Clifton as the Marconi operator and he applied for a change. He applied to the Marconi headquarters saying, look, I've been out in Clifton, you know, it's, it's, not the, it's not the most exciting place in the world. Can you give me a good post? And they came back to him and said, we've got a great post for you. Senior wireless operator on the Titanic. And, you know, the poor man did not survive. He was a great guy. He kept signaling all the time, giving their exact location and where they were on the... On the uh, North Atlantic, his companion with him, also radio officer, they eventually left the office, the, the telegraph office, and they ran in opposite directions. Poor Phillips did not survive. The other man did. But he told a wonderful story of Phillips staying at his post, bravely sending out the signal. And, and Tom, in terms of the photographs, what ones really stand out for you and tell the most powerful stories? Well, I suppose the most important photograph we've ever printed uh, was of the Oireachtas, the Conrana Gaeilge Oireachtas in Galway in 1913. There are over 100 people in the photograph, but they include several people who became president of Ireland, Parik Pierce, a huge number of <clears throat> the people who fought in 1916 and subsequently in the uh, War of Independence, but also uh, a lot of literary people, writers like Parik O'Connor and so on. We've never actually identified every one of them, but uh, we're well on the way, and every now and then somebody writes to say, my grandfather from Cavan is there, or whatever. Uh, and it was certainly the most important. Uh, all of the photographs are very different. <clears throat> you know, the older ones are wonderful and very interesting. But if you get... Uh, a photograph that was taken 42 years ago, within living memory, then that's a different kind of thing, and that affects people in many different ways. So, like, for example, this week uh, I was writing about Woolworth, Galway, and that stirred up a lot of nostalgic memories for people. Uh, 
you know, now they were only they only arrived in in fifties, <clears throat> so they they would be relatively recent. So all of the photographs are different. It may be a street today, a business tomorrow. It may be a football team the following week, whatever. Uh, and it's a constant search and trawl looking for old and interesting photographs. And the other thing about them is if you get one of a street, for example, uh, go to the local grocery shop or the local pub or the hairdresser, check who is the best person on this street to talk about this. And <laughs> you'll be sent to the elderly lady in number 24 or whatever. And <laughs> you're, you're actually yeah. getting it then from the horse's mouth. You know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So the, a lot of it is folklore. Uh, uh, some of it is history, but the images are the very important thing. I, all of my, whatever I write is built around photographs. And Ronnie, it's an also, it's a fascinating way of telling the story of, of Galway as well, because you really get to see how the, how, it evolved from a town to a city and uh, how it changed for the people who live there, uh, the stories of the men, women and children. And it very mm. much is the history of Galway as well. It is from a kind of a social point of view. You're absolutely right. I was surprised when we did launch the book and we had a launch and we, we enjoyed all that bit of fun. But people did say things like that. You know, I, I only came to Galway 10 or 15 years ago. I'm really enjoying you know, reading back on the the stories, and I get a feel for the for the sort of you know the the atmosphere of the town. I get a feel for the kind of the kind of place that I'm living in, and I love it. And we were pleasantly surprised to get that kind of reaction because we thought we were kind of writing, you know, for <laughs> for perhaps people who are native all the time. But no, we're not. It, it, it has rung a bell with newcomers to the town, of which there are many. And uh, it's great that they react that way. And I felt, uh, I felt it was good. Good. Very good. Well, congratulations to both of you. And uh, long may your storytelling continue uh, in words and through the photographs. And uh, I think it's some wonderful work. And I think if people want to uh, follow it weekly, uh, well, just go to the Galway Advertiser. And I think you have your own podcast as well. We do indeed. Yes, we've been doing that now just for a year. And that's worked out very well. So we really talk about what we're doing. Tom will talk about his photograph. Um, I mean, the Woolworths photograph now has just really struck a chord, didn't it, Tom? Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, something simple as that, you know, so many people have memories of Woolworths, you know, that it was such a, a unique kind of shop to come to Galway. But yes, we do a podcast and that goes all over the world. We're amazed at the at the distant corners of the world that people listen to us. So we're, we're both amazed and pleased. Well, the book is called The Old Galway Diary and it's published by the Galway Advertiser and the people behind it, uh, two wonderful uh, uh, people bringing to the story of Galway and its rich history to life, Tom Kenny and Ronnie O'Gorman. Tom, Ronnie, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Marisa Sullivan, my producer, Eugene Kolachev on research, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at war, murder and memory in East Clare, finding out how Dublin was shaped in the first part of the 20th century, and also talking about how Ken Mayer experienced the trauma of the famine. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History.